Welcome to episode 174 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Jane Mason, who served in the FBI for 28 years. Initially assigned to the Kansas City Division, she spent the majority of her career in the New York office where she worked white-collar crime cases with a heavy focus on environmental crimes. In this episode, Jane Mason reviews a case she worked with the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, where the subject, Gary Bennett, as Gerace Contracting Corp., was hired for asbestos abatement at the 26th Federal Plaza Building in New York. Workers used illegal removal methods and then dumped grates and bags of asbestos at scattered locations throughout New York City, exposing anyone who unknowingly came in contact with the hazardous materials. As a collateral duty for 16 years, Jane Mason also served as the evidence response team leader, collecting forensic evidence at hundreds of local, national, and international crime scenes, including collecting evidence in human remains for nine months following the attack of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Upon her retirement, she and another retired agent formed a private investigations company where a number of her clients were survivors of sexual assault. Her expertise and experience with evidence collection and working with survivors motivated Jane Mason to form the Preserve Group and to create and manufacture the Preserve Kit, a self-administered sexual assault evidence collection kit for survivors who do not have a sexual assault forensic exam, commonly referred to as a rape kit. You can visit PreserveKit.com to learn more. This was a fascinating interview. We started with environmental crime and we went to evidence collection. And then Jane used this interview as an opportunity to introduce the Preserve Kit. One of the best things about this episode is Jane Mason and her willingness to share her life experiences to help others. But before we get to the interview, I just have three things that I need to let you know. First of all, I want to tell you about our virtual book club. For those of you who have already picked up a copy of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, or who plan to do so shortly, I hope you'll attend the virtual book club where I'll make myself available to answer any questions that you might have about the 20 cliches and misconceptions that are featured in the book. The virtual book club is scheduled for Thursday, July 25th at 7 o'clock Eastern Time on Zoom. You can use a link to attend the virtual book club or call in. You can learn more about the virtual book club in this month's reader team email and on my website, jerrywilliams.com, J-E-R-R-I, williams.com. I also want to remind everyone that I am giving away a scholarship to the She Podcast Live 
Conference in Atlanta in October. And you can learn more about that scholarship valued at $279 in this month's Reader Team email. And the last thing, I keep forgetting to tell everyone that I will be attending Thriller Fest this year. If you're listening to this episode the first weekend that it comes out, I am at Thriller Fest in New York, which is one of the largest international conferences for authors who write thrillers and crime fiction. So if you're attending, I would love to meet you in person. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Jane Mason. Hey, Jane, how are you? Good morning, Jerry. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And I am thrilled to have you on today because there are going to be so many things that we're going to be talking about today, and all of them very, very important. We're going to first do a case review. You spent many years working white-collar crime matters with a heavy focus on environmental crime, so we picked one of those to talk about. But a collateral duty for FBI agents is being a member of the evidence response team, you know, doing forensic evidence collection. And you did that for what? For 16 years. So even though you were working these environmental crimes and, and white collar cases, I take it that took up a lot of your, your, your time too, doing evidence collection. Well, it did, actually, and it's one of those collateral duties that we have at the FBI that is extremely time-consuming. So you really need to be able to find a balance between your caseload and the work on the evidence response team so that nothing suffers. You know, you want to be able to give 110% to both. And I can imagine that in working environmental crimes, that evidence collection was a very important part of that. So was that why you decided to join the evidence response team? Actually, with environmental crimes, evidence collection is so important. But because of the nature of the crimes and contamination and exposure, most of the evidence in those cases was collected by specialists, whether it was somebody who specialized in hazardous waste cleanups or something similar to that. So I, I most often was just uh, the observer in those cases. And it wasn't until about the mid-90s that the evidence response team came into existence at the FBI. And at first, I thought it was just a fascinating idea that we would have these type of specialists at the FBI. And a couple of years after its inception, I said, oh, I've just got to be a part of this team. It was dynamic and, you know, you could just do so much additional work. Evidence collection is connected to the investigative work that you did, but it also is very much connected to what you're doing now that you have retired. So we're going to talk about that too. So why don't we get started first with the case review. So this is a case, an environmental case, that sounds like it hit pretty close to home, or, or, or I guess I should say pretty close to work for you. So why don't you get us started on this case review? Okay, so this case is that I'm going to talk about today is an environmental crime case. And I want to start with a little bit of background because I think it will help once we talk about the case itself. 
Basically, the FBI is charged with investigating violations of the laws of the United States, except when that responsibility is assigned to another investigative agency. A lot of people don't know, and I sure didn't before I started working these kinds of crimes, that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, has a criminal investigations division, and they are the lead federal agency when it comes to enforcing the environmental statutes. In 1982, the FBI and the EPA signed what is known as a Memorandum of Understanding, and that enabled the FBI to work environmental crimes cases in conjunction with the EPA, as well as independently if the EPA didn't have the resources to work on a particular matter. One kind of environmental crime is named the Clean Air Act, which, among many other things, regulates the way asbestos is removed during an asbestos abatement so that cancer-causing asbestos fibers don't become airborne and become part of the air that we breathe. When I talk about these cases, a lot of people ask me, Jane, what is asbestos anyway? You know, everybody's heard of it, but what actually is it? And what it is, is a naturally occurring mineral. And it's found inside certain kinds of rocks. It is a fibrous material and it can be pulled apart. And uh, it's something similar to cotton candy. It used to be called the magic mineral because it is incredibly heat resistant. So it became ubiquitous in the construction industry when it came time for insulation. There is asbestos in almost every kind of insulation in the building industry, as well as roofing tiles, floor tiles, and it, it was really everywhere. Over time, though, scientists realized that asbestos causes cancer. So it became a very heavily regulated industry. And in 1977, the EPA banned the use of asbestos in, in new buildings and new insulation uses. This does resonate with me on a personal matter because my father-in-law did die of asbestosis, a very sad and devastating lung disease where he just couldn't breathe anymore. And, and so the removal of asbestos is, you know, something that I, I definitely want to make sure is regulated. And did he work in the asbestos industry? He actually worked in the Navy Yard in Philadelphia, and I'm not sure where the asbestos was as, you know, they're building ships or refitting ships, but it was in the ships that they, mm -hmm. you know, worked on every day. You know, back then there was no protection for the workers, so so many people got sick. Yeah, absolutely. The way asbestos becomes dangerous is if we inhale it or ingest it. Believe it or not, people have eaten it and gotten cancers from eating asbestos that was in their food. Much more typically, though, it's it, asbestos fibers are in the air and we breathe them in and fibers will get lodged in your lung tissue. And then it's not until 15 to 20 years after your exposure that asbestos-related cancers emerge. And just like asbestosis and other commonly heard asbestos-related cancer name is mesothelioma. 
I hear a lot of uh, TV ads for, you know, attorneys um, doing class action suits if you have mesothelioma or asbestosis. So it's a really, you know, horrible disease to, to get and, you know, totally preventable if, if you wear the right clothing and you prevent your personal exposure. So when it comes to insulation, asbestos insulation is not dangerous when it's just sitting on the substrate like, like a, a pipe. It becomes dangerous when it is disturbed, like if there's a demolition project or some kind of construction project that would disturb it. And when I say disturb it, even just hitting it so that the outer wrapping becomes unraveled and then the inside asbestos fibers become exposed to the air and then the fibers are very friable. They're very, you know, they they are, if it's not wet, they will be released into the air and that you can't see them. They're microscopic and that's when it becomes very dangerous. So if you have a construction project and it's going to involve uh, some kind of disturbance of an asbestos insulation in the building, the building owners are required to hire an asbestos abatement contractor, an asbestos removal company, to remove the asbestos in a safe manner prior to any construction. So the abatement companies are licensed to do this work in a way that no asbestos is released into the environment. While they're doing these abatements, they have to, according to laws and regulations, follow hundreds of engineering controls that are in place so that there won't be any release of asbestos into the environment. One engineering control that everybody is familiar with is that the workers doing this work have to wear personal protection, like a face mask and a Tyvek suit. Another control is, as we previously mentioned, when asbestos is wet, it tends not to become airborne. So during an asbestos removal, we literally have to have one worker holding a hose and pouring water on the asbestos that's being removed and keep it wet until it goes into a bag and, and until it's sealed inside that bag. And then that prevents the fibers from being released into the environment. In New York City, there were hundreds of buildings built during the time that, that asbestos will, was legal to be used in building materials. And uh, every year, there are hundreds and hundreds of construction projects in buildings in New York. And of those hundreds and hundreds of construction projects, there are many, many asbestos abatement projects that are ongoing each and every year. Some of the contractors follow the rules and regulations for asbestos removal to a T. And unfortunately, there are several that don't follow the rules at all. So while I was working on the white collar crime branch in the New York office and focusing on environmental crimes, we opened many cases related to the improper removal of asbestos. In a typical scenario, to save money, the asbestos abatement contractor would cut corners during the abatement, and that was always in violation of the federal laws. The cases we opened were typically intentional, egregious releases of asbestos into the environment, as opposed to something that might have happened at a work site, uh, you know, by accident or maybe a bookkeeping shortcut that had no consequences. 
So now we're up to March of 1994 when we opened an investigation that led to a trail of asbestos that was illegally removed and dumped in various public outdoor areas throughout New York and it created an enormous public health risk. So the FBI in New York is located in a building known as 26 Federal Plaza. Ironically, the EPA is also located in this building. It's a large federal building managed by the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA, which is the federal agency responsible for, among many other things, the maintenance and upkeep of federal buildings. So the GSA had established a long-term contract with Ogden Allied for extensive work within the building and it included the replacement of the water cooling tower, which was located on the roof of the building. Cooling towers typically are insulated, and this particular cooling tower was insulated with asbestos insulation. So Ogden Allied subcontracted the work on the cooling tower replacement to a company named Manhattan Cooling Towers, which in turn subcontracted the asbestos removal from the cooling towers to a company named Gerace Contracting Company, which was a licensed asbestos removal company owned and operated by an individual named Gary Bennett. So Bennett hired a crew and began removing the asbestos from the cooling tower in early March of 1994. He did not follow any of the engineering controls that were in place to prevent a release of asbestos into the environment. Many sad parts about this case, but the, the first thing I wanted to mention was that Bennett hired both licensed and unlicensed workers to do this work. He didn't have them wear any personal protection whatsoever. Also, they didn't use any water when they removed the asbestos. So as you pull insulation off the substrate, if it's not wet, it typically will have a release of fibers. And the other thing that they did when they were removing the asbestos is they threw the asbestos over a ledge to a roof below that was 30 feet down. And so you can sort of picture it in your, in your mind that when you throw something that's sort of dusty and crumbly and it lands 30 feet down, you know, you can sort of uh, see the plume of dust that, that is released when it hits the, the ground. So there were more releases when that happened. One of the workers we talked to after the fact said that he had counted the asbestos that was removed from the cooling towers and he counted 410 bags of asbestos and 140 asbestos grates. And the grates reminded me of air conditioning filters, except they're huge. They were either four foot squared or five foot squared, roughly that size. So when they were done removing the asbestos, they brought about half of it down to ground level and Bennett didn't have any plans for how to dispose of the asbestos. So what, what he should have done was wrap it properly and send it to a licensed facility that accepts asbestos waste. Instead, he dumped the asbestos in scattered locations throughout New York City. First, he rented a 15-foot U-Haul truck, which is not a licensed vehicle to transport uh, asbestos waste. And he had his workers load the asbestos into the truck. 
they threw some of the asbestos grates in a parking lot. And then they drove the truck to Brooklyn, where they dumped a few bags in a baseball field. And they dumped the rest of the bags from the truck, which was just over 300 bags, just in a parking lot next to a dumpster. It was a parking lot behind a supermarket. And oddly enough, it turned out to be a supermarket on the same exact block where Bennett lived. So he was actually dumping you know, right in his own neighborhood. The next day, they come back to 26 Federal Plaza to pick up the rest of the asbestos. So they fill up the U-Haul truck with all the rest of the grates. And they have a few bags left. So they throw the bags of asbestos waste into a city sanitation truck. And then Bennett tells his workers to drive the U-Haul truck and abandon it. So they drove it to a remote place in, in Brooklyn and left it at the side of the road. So each time one of these sites was discovered, when you know it was suspected that it was asbestos, uh, the DEP, the New York City Environmental Agency, would respond and then order an emergency cleanup paid for by the city. Because at first, we didn't know where the asbestos came from. There was no, there were no identifying marks on the bags or inside the bags on the asbestos itself to identify where it had originated. Fortunately for everyone, about two weeks after the removal, uh, one of the workers came forward to law enforcement and explained what had happened during the asbestos removal at 26 Federal Plaza and the dump sites and how it had been conducted by Bennett. So this is when we began our investigation, two weeks after the fact. It was a multi-agency investigation, which I, I really enjoyed working multi-agency investigations because I really enjoyed the teamwork. This particular case involved the GSA, the EPA, the New York City Sanitation Department, which had an environmental police unit. So it was a very interesting group of people. All of the sites that I just described were located and the asbestos was remediated with the exception of two sets of dump sites. The asbestos bags that were thrown into the sanitation truck were never located. And the asbestos grates that were thrown into the parking lot in Little Italy were never located. We searched and searched for the right parking lot and finally found it and spoke to an attendant who remembered seeing the grates there. And he said that they weren't there for very long when some homeless people came and picked them up and walked away with them. And of course, nobody knew at the time that they were contaminated with asbestos. So there was absolutely no way to track down those, uh, those asbestos grates. So those were two, two parts of this that, that were lost to us. I take it that the only reason that they're doing this is not out of ignorance, but out of a, a cost saving. I mean, why would they do this? And you also mentioned that he had licensed and unlicensed workers. I would imagine that the licensed workers, they knew better too. What's, what's going on? Jerase Contracting, the company involved, was a licensed asbestos abatement contractor. So, they knew full well what the rules and regulations were and how to follow them. Uh, this wasn't their first asbestos removal job. In fact, they had been in business for several years by then. The unfortunate, one of the many unfortunate parts of this is that unlicensed workers 
may not know the difference. They may not even know that they're being exposed to a cancer-causing element. The licensed workers, what we found oftentimes in our asbestos cases was that the licensed workers, even though it could jeopardize their license, if they were getting paid, they would do what they were told. A lot of the people who were asbestos abatement workers were illegal immigrants from other countries, and they were here to work. And so if somebody said, do it this way, to keep their job, they typically did. Interesting. I would think with them being licensed and being trained, that they would have a full understanding of the risk to people and the environment. And I guess that's exactly what happened with the one worker who did come forward. That's right. I think he felt very guilty and realized the magnitude of what they had done and just couldn't live with it anymore. So that's why he came forward. But yeah, it's it seems so illogical when I look at cases like this. It just seems like, you know, the people, okay, so Gary Bennett was the boss of this job. Well, he was also jeopardizing his own health and potentially that of his family. He had a young baby at the time and you know, being exposed to asbestos like that, you bring the asbestos home with you. And so he was potentially exposing everybody around him in his life. So it's very illogical to me. It, it's very hard for me to understand sometimes. Yeah, it, it is difficult to understand. So a couple of months later, we were able to put this case together very, very quickly. And in May of 1994, we arrested Bennett and two of the workers that he had hired. I was the team leader on the Bennett arrest team, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard this on your podcast, but I was six and a half months pregnant when I made that arrest. So I barely could squeeze into my bulletproof vest. I could barely fit. And it was an incredible experience in the sense that you know the series of events leading up to his arrest just as I just said, was so illogical to me. And it seemed just such an incredible random series that it was hard for me to understand. So, I mean, I was practically ready to find asbestos inside Bennett's apartment once we got there. I'm sure that's a question that everyone has. Was this random? Was this something that he had done for the first time? Or was it something that his company had been doing all along? And if it was for the first time, why in the world would he choose the first time to be when he's working on a federal building? It defies logic. I agree. I completely agree. Well, we didn't find asbestos in his apartment. Good. But his work van was parked in the parking lot behind his apartment building. And sure enough, when we looked at it, it had lots of windows. And when we looked at it, it was chock full of bags from 26 Federal Plaza's water cooling tower. And uh, some of the asbestos grates were in his van as well. This was his personal work van. So yet another cleanup had to be conducted by the city at a cost of $10,000 that time. Later the day of the arrest, Bennett was released on bail with the condition that he report any asbestos abatements he planned to do to the EPA, a minimum of 48 hours ahead of time. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They were going to yeah. let him continue working? I know that he hasn't been criminally prosecuted, but isn't there some way to suspend 
his his license to work on asbestos once they discover a whole van full of uh, asbestos product? It is extremely shocking that he would be allowed to continue this work. I know at that point it was an allegation because he hadn't pled guilty, he hadn't been convicted, and so it was an allegation at that point in time. No, there's a whole van full of asbestos. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's not an allegation. That's concrete, physical proof. I know. Looking back, as I was reviewing all of this information, you know, I started remembering, you know, we were shocked that they would allow him to continue working in this field. But I remember he had an attorney assigned to him that day who pled poverty to the judge. And he expressed this as the only source of income. And there's a small baby at home. He's the sole provider. Uh, you know, et cetera. And um, that was the outcome that day. So yeah, it was, it was pretty surprising, but, um, but you know, that, that did tend to happen at least up in New York with the environmental crimes cases. So uh, as we know, the federal system can sometimes work somewhat slowly. And so it was about a year later. So now it's June of 1995 and Two witnesses came forward just off the street and said they wanted to talk with somebody about Gary Bennett. So, of course, you know, what, what do you have to report about Gary Bennett? And so they said that since Gary's arrest the year before, he had, in fact, been conducting asbestos removals without reporting it to the EPA and dumping the asbestos just in the street or the side of the road. And that Not only that, he had started a stolen check cashing scheme where he he would hire people to steal mail from postal carriers, and then he'd go through for any checks and deposit the checks into his own checking account, which, you know, during an investigation, that's something that's relatively easy to track. At that point, I was just thinking, boy, you know, I have so many other cases. I just want to, I just want to sort of close the case on Gary Bennett, but he kept coming back to haunt us. So anyway, we investigated these new allegations and we arrested him a second time for the asbestos crimes and that time also for stealing the mail, which is a federal crime and cashing stolen checks, which is also another federal crime. But I'm not sure how you'll feel about this. So he pled guilty and he was sentenced to serve five years of probation. Okay. I was what? expecting reaction. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my reaction is just dumbfounded. Okay. So he has put the entire city and we know for a fact, some homeless people who have no idea, you know, what they had. So he's put the entire city at risk by dumping this asbestos all over the place. And he gets five years of probation. As if that's not bad enough, one of the two workers who was arrested along with him back in 94, you know, was working for him. So Gary Bennett was this worker's boss and that employee got three years of probation for a sentence. So almost as much as sort of the mastermind, if you want to call Bennett a mastermind. So yeah, it did, it just, didn't always add up as far as the ju- judicial part of this, but, um, but yeah, that was the outcome in court. Well, I know <clears throat> that the you know prosecutors can 
ask for or make a recommendation, which of course the judge doesn't have to follow. So what was it that the prosecutive team felt that Bennett should have gotten for this crime? Yeah, I remember we thought that he should get a minimum of five years jail time, plus the probation, plus being banned from the industry, because he he just obviously wasn't uh, someone that should be working with asbestos abatements. And, or any dangerous materials for that matter. And he wasn't banned from the industry and it was just a five-year probation. There weren't even any fines or fees involved in his sentence. So it's a very low sentence. We were very disappointed. But, you know, you have to take that with, with any case because at that point it's with the judge and so, you know, that, that's just the way it fell out. Uh, you have um, to respect the system, you know. have to respect it. And we do. How did that affect your morale? How did that affect how you handled the next case or did it? Well, we were always disappointed when we got what we felt was a light sentence, but we were a really motivated team of people working on the environmental crimes. We had prosecutors in both judicial districts who were uh, designated environmental crimes prosecutors, and we were really aggressive. So we we our morale wasn't affected at all. We we would be disappointed occasionally when we had these light sentences, but our morale was really pretty high throughout the uh, the entire time. And that's what you call professionalism. Yes, and complete devotion to the work, which we were totally devoted. And so you know you have to take the disappointments like the sentencings in stride because you had no control over it anyway. And as we said earlier, we respect the judicial system and, um, you know, the judge's decisions. So the FBI in New York worked environmental crimes until 2008 when the financial crisis hit. And at that point, the powers that be there decided to focus all the white collar crime resources on crime, you know, related to banking and the financial crisis rather than environmental crimes. I had one supervisor said that we won't work any more environmental crimes cases unless the Hudson River turns green one day. <laughs> you never know. And I take it that the initial reason for the FBI to work those cases with the EPA was to provide the additional manpower and resources, which now are, were, were not needed as much. Yes, that was part of it. The EPA's criminal division in New York had grown and it was very active. And so the FBI in New York felt that if we stopped working environmental crimes, you know, the enforcement of those violations wouldn't suffer because the EPA's criminal division was, had become so active over the years. I think if, if it's um, a case of some enormity, that, of course, the FBI would get involved, or if, if a request is made to the FBI by the EPA for assistance. You know, that's a whole other matter as well. Of course, we would assist in any way we could. And so I guess the end of the story happens when you give birth and you name your, your child asbestosis? or <laughs> uh, Yeah, I named her uh, Gerace. <laughs> <laughs> Since she was around for the investigation, I can only imagine that <laughs> yeah. her name was inspired from this uh, from this case. 
Yeah, that was interesting. That was the last arrest I made during the pregnancy because <laughs> I think after that day, uh, the uh, bulletproof vest would absolutely not go on. Uh, that, that was it until after, after I gave birth. Well, yes. Well, one of the things that we had mentioned earlier on was the fact that how important physical evidence was in these type of cases. And you did explain that you had, you know, skilled and trained environmental people who collected this type of evidence. But if you're ready, let's move on to the 16 years that you worked on the evidence response team. Why don't we just touch on some of the cases? So, Being on the evidence response team for 16 years gave me exposure to literally every kind of case that's out there. Not only do you have to take a a tremendous amount of training so that you can learn the proper techniques to collect forensic evidence, but you have to take training on an ongoing basis so that you can keep up to date with new trends or new methods and you know, DNA was emerging during this time, and DNA evidence became vitally important in so many cases. What we did sort of on a daily basis was uh, our ultimate goal was to respond to crime scenes, international, national, and local, when called upon. So when called upon means when, uh, for example, a case squad in New York had a search they were about to conduct and they felt there would be forensic evidence at the search, and they would make a request to the evidence response team to assist them at the search or conduct the search altogether and collect the evidence for that particular case. Other agencies sometimes asked for assistance. Of course, if crimes against American citizens occurred overseas, we often went to the various locations where the crime had happened to collect evidence overseas. We went to Saudi Arabia back in 96 when Kobar Towers was bombed with the truck bomb and 19 servicemen were killed in that incident. Uh, We had several teams go over there in in two-week periods of time, you know, overlapping for a day or so to train the incoming team and then, you know, the next team would come in. So what we were doing there was just going through the big, enormous crater that was caused or created in a parking lot next door to the housing unit that was bombed and collecting evidence from that crater. The way it worked was, you know, there was a mountain of rubble and a bulldozer would take that, uh, scoop up the rubble and lay out the rubble in the parking lot. So there was a very thin layer and maybe maybe um, the size of a football field. And what I would do was I had a huge magnet attached to a stick and I would run that over this field of debris. Every time I made a pass through the field, any metal that I had collected would get given to somebody else who would start packaging it and labeling it and collecting it as evidence. One of our bigger jobs early on Although it didn't turn out to be a crime, we worked on TWA Flight 800 that same year, and we were there for months out on Long Island where the plane had crashed. For so long, we didn't know if it was a crime or not that caused the plane to crash, and so we treated it as though it were, and so every single piece of debris from the plane was considered an item of evidence. 
we had to initial and date every piece of evidence from that plane. And some days we would get thousands of pieces into the evidence collection section that we would have to initial and date. And that was a very, very interesting case as well. So those were two of the bigger early cases. Of course, we had 9-11, which was another case that took us many months to respond to and to collect the evidence. We had evidence response teams in the morgue at Ground Zero and then out at the landfill in Staten Island where the debris from the World Trade Center was taken and that's where all the debris was gone through for evidence. We were looking for evidence of the crime. We were looking for personal uh, items, uh, whether they were items belonging to the terrorists or of some of the passengers or people inside the building. We were looking for human remains. We were looking for the black boxes. So that was a very intense, intense job. We were working 12-hour shifts. That's all anybody thought of for a very, very long time. Those are some of the bigger cases. But we also worked on just, you know, search warrants to help case agents collect their evidence. We worked body recoveries for some of the organized crime squads, and those were always interesting. And on many occasions, we actually found the human remains from, it would be mostly from source information. 30 years ago, we buried a person in this particular place. And you know, depending on the circumstances, every case was very different. So we were happy when we could recover the human remains from some of those cases. And then all the way down to smaller cases, you know, a car that was used in a bank robbery or an item that got brought in that we thought a bad guy had touched. So we would lift latent fingerprints from the item and well, you know, I have to ask you this question because we, we've, we first talked about the dangers of asbestos and, you know, how you need to be, you know, fully covered and masked in, in order to protect yourself. And I just did an episode a couple of months ago talking about the issues that are happening with 9-11 first responders and the risks they encountered during their evidence collection experiences. So are you tied into those different groups monitoring the, the health of evidence collectors and first responders? I am. And I joined the shortly after they began. And what, what it does for us is basically they, we go for a physical once a year and they sort of keep track of, of all the people who are a part of it. And they do studies, and it, it's very interesting, very important work. And I'm glad it's funded again, <laughs> because uh, yes, it really I really saw that. That's excellent. So I was down, I was a team leader at the time, right after 9-11. And for a while, I was assigned to the Staten Island landfill, where we were going through the debris and you know, cleaning it and, you know, because everything got muddy and was very dirty. So if we got, for example, human remains or a driver's license, we would rinse it off, wash it off, you know, bring it to the right person. The ME's office had a tent there. We would bring human remains over to them for identification. So there was a process for everything that we found, but it involved getting really, being really hands-on with all of the debris and all of the materials that were in the debris. So in 2011, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
And it was determined through the monitoring system that it was related to my exposure during 9-11. So I was there, I was at ground zero and at the landfill for nine months. And I worked the night shift and um, apparently night work is a whole other factor that can contribute to some cancer causing events. I am a big part of that. I'm a big proponent. I've seen so many sick people and, you know, I know everybody I know would do the exact same thing all over again, as would I. I'm glad I'm at the place where I am now, where I look back at my illness and it, it's a long road. I had six major surgeries and it was a, it was a life altering experience. So I'm glad I'm sort of looking back at it rather than facing it. But um, a lot of people got sick. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I was the 13th female special agent in the New York office that had fairly recently been diagnosed with breast cancer. So, I mean, it was a real eye-opener. We, we talked a lot about it at the time and really thought that it was a cluster and, and had to be related to 9-11. But I'm not sure if any studies have been done. I'm not sure if that's been investigated. When I asked that question, I had no idea that you were actually one of the people that had been diagnosed. And so, of course, I have to ask, how are you doing now? What's, what's your health now? Well, thank you so much for asking. And no, we have never discussed this before. So you probably got more information than, than <laughs> you thought you might. But I am cancer free. And I've done everything I possibly could to become cancer free in terms of chemotherapy and surgeries and sort of had everything removed that could possibly get affected. So thank you for asking. I appreciate it. And yes, I'm cancer free. Happy to say that. And I have been for six years now. So I'm very happy to be past like the five-year hurdle is a really important hurdle. So very happy to be in this place now. Absolutely. You know, I'm always talking about the sacrifices that agents and police officers, law enforcement officers in general make as far as sacrificing their personal life, their, their family commitments. But when you talk about getting an illness, becoming sick because of the work that you have done as part of your service as a law enforcement officer, as a special agent, then you're taking that sacrifice to a whole different level. So, wow, you know, it sometimes it, it becomes just a saying, but I have to say to you, thank you for your service. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. But as I mentioned already, I would have done the same exact thing if I had to do it all over again. So nothing sort of changed. So I don't even look at it as as a sacrifice. I was glad to be a part of this. I was I was thrilled every day to have my job at the FBI. I loved every moment being a special agent with the FBI. And it was an honor to serve the American public and uphold the laws of the Constitution. And I would do every little bit all over again. Well, I think this is a, a great point now to talk about what you're doing now, because I would imagine as you're going through breast cancer treatment, issues involving women's health really become important to you. So why don't we talk about the work that you're doing now? 
I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you about is how did you become invested in helping women document sexual assaults? So you're right. In terms of the breast cancer recovery, it was really my first time sort of engaging with my softer side. You know, I started looking into yoga and meditation and started becoming more aware and mindful of my surroundings and the world and feelings and things like that. And while I was doing that, for most of it, I was still at the FBI, but then I retired in 2014. And I started a private investigations company named Secure Investigation with another retired FBI agent. We get hired for a huge variety of cases. Early on, one of the cases that we got hired to work on was a case that impacted me to this day and always will. It was a case about a college student who was raped her freshman year in college and so traumatized by it that she couldn't speak a word about it for two years when she told a counselor that she had been seeing that she had been sexually assaulted and eventually they worked together so she could eventually tell her parents and then her parents started dealing with it. But in the two years when she couldn't talk about it, she dropped out of school and she'd been bulimic she had been in and out of facilities, and basically her life course had been completely altered. And I work with her now on my project, and she's just an inspiration to me. I helped her work through the judicial system. I helped her put her case together so that we could present it to law enforcement near her college. So I saw firsthand, for the first time with a case like this, I know not all cases are, are like this, but I saw this particular law enforcement entity treat this survivor who was still young. She was 23 at the time we were doing this. And they treated her in such a shameful way. They played the blame game. So I was seeing that for the first time where the victim was describing the kind of force that the perpetrator had used when he committed the assault. And a female detective said to the victim, the survivor, that wasn't enough force. And she would just say things that were so degrading that I knew at some point the survivor was just simply not going to be able to talk about it anymore with the detective because I could see she was being re-traumatized. So eventually, I worked with that law enforcement agency and with the prosecutor out there, and they behaved in just a reprehensible way. And so the criminal case went nowhere. By the time the, this survivor was able to discuss the assault, the statute of limitations had expired for any civil case, which was you know, one of two courses that the survivor could take, you know, whether it's a civil or, or criminal complaint. But since it happened at college, she could also report it to um, the Department of Education. So we got in touch with them. They have a, an office for civil rights, and they have a statute of limitations of 180 days for reporting a sexual assault on a college campus. Wow. And everywhere we turned on that case was just a, you know a, a door closing on us. A really educational experience for me. It was sad and educational. We also had other cases, and eventually, leading up to last year, we had been hired on maybe five or six different cases that involved sexual assault. 
And most of the cases, the survivor didn't report it to the police and didn't go to a hospital and have a rape kit done. So there was no evidence. Can we talk about that? Because I understand, I definitely understand why that happens. But I think that there may be people listening who don't understand that somebody has been sexually assaulted, has been violated, and they don't report it, they don't collect the evidence, they don't say anything. So I think we need to to pause just for a little bit here and talk about that. Okay. So there are countless reasons why people don't report sexual assaults. And if you read articles about it, you'll read 20 reasons from this article, and then a different article has 20 different reasons. Most of the reasons have to do with the fact that survivors feel they won't be believed, or they think it was their fault, or other reasons that they're worried about. There's a reason why they don't want to, and each person is different and has their own reasons. In our cases, the college student didn't want to tell anybody, so she didn't report it at all. She has talked with me a great deal about the preserve kit, which is what we're going to talk about. And she says if they had been educated in college about what sexual assault was and what you can do to respond to it properly, that she would have been better prepared. Very interesting piece of information came to me a couple of months ago. I was visiting my alma mater up in Massachusetts, which is Babson College, and I was talking with the Title IX coordinator and the head of the wellness center up there. We were talking about sexual assaults, and they told me that if a survivor comes forward to them and says, I've been sexually assaulted, they say, would you like to go to the hospital? They say most people don't want to, but those that do want to go to the hospital, they'll offer to accompany them. And they say that the times that they have accompanied survivors to the hospital, the survivors often only want the plan B pill and an STD prophylaxis and refuse to do the rape kit, which is known as the SANE exam, but it's where medical professionals trained for these particular types of crimes collect evidence from the survivor that can later be processed in a, in a forensic lab for DNA evidence or fingerprints or you know, the other types of forensic evidence. So that was an eye-opener for me because I just assumed that if somebody's reporting it, then they'll take care of their evidence. They're already at the hospital. So you know, I never knew there was sort of that nuance where people had the different concerns and didn't want to collect the evidence. Now, if you do any research on online, there's a lot of negativity surrounding the information that's out there related to the you know, conducting of a rape kit at a hospital. You know, survivors tell stories of how it took hours and hours and that they were re-traumatized, re-victimized during the rape kit exam. And that's because they had they are traumatized to begin with and they had just dealt with a horrific situation. So, you know, you read a lot of negative things. So I I do think that contributes to why some people might already be at a hospital and then refuse to actually do the rape kit. You know, they're there, they get their plan B, or if they're worried about an STD, and that's all they want. And I take it that a lot of this goes back to the victim blaming themselves because maybe they were drunk or they went back to the guy's place and all of these things that have nothing to do with whether or not you gave somebody permission to touch your body. Exactly. 
let's talk about what you're doing. You have put together a collection kit. Why don't you explain what it is? Okay, so we decided uh, that it would be uh, of great use to survivors if we could put this kit together. So um, over the last several months, what we've done was based on my own evidence collection experience, I knew what evidence was very important and what evidence was very difficult to obtain. And I sort of had a really good balance on what I felt anyway in my level of expertise, what a good kit for a person to collect their own evidence after a sexual assault. I felt I had a really good handle on on what kind of evidence a person could do, what someone untrained to collect evidence would be capable of doing, especially when they're traumatized. So we put together a kit that has step-by-step instructions for survivors to collect various types of evidence. So for example, we have swabs in the kit so that the survivor of the sexual assault can swab areas of their body and then collect any you know, dried secretions that might be still on them and that could contain excellent DNA evidence. We also have something called a hinge lifter, but it's got sort of a tacky, sticky side on one part of it. That way you can collect some of the hairs and fiber type of evidence. So if you collect hairs and fibers that are still attached to your body, and one of those hairs belongs to the perpetrator in the forensic crime lab, we can make a match that way. So we have the DNA collection, we have hairs and fiber collection, and we also discuss and provide instructions for how to label each item that is collected and how to package each item that is collected. We have information about storing the evidence. And on our website, we talk about what a typical police investigation into sexual assaults would be, what people can do in the future. So I think it's an excellent option. It's an option for those who don't want to report it or don't want to have the kit done at a hospital because now they can collect their own evidence say in a month or say if it's 30 years later, like we're seeing oftentimes now, you still have that evidence. So it gives you options. There may be a way to connect your perpetrator to your allegations backed up with concrete evidence that you maintained from the day it happened. Now, putting aside the way that women are, and men, I assume, report how they are mm-hmm. made to feel sometimes we had to clarify that. I'm sure there are some mm-hmm. very caring people that uh, work in these facilities you know, that do rape collection kits. But for those people who feel that they weren't treated correctly, it still, I take it, would be better if they use the facilities at the hospital. First thing I do want to stress, what we're doing is not to take away from the function of law enforcement or of any of the medical facilities. We really want to target those people who aren't able to, for whatever their reason, collect evidence through you know trained personnel. So that's our goal. Our, we don't want to replace anybody. We, we're planning to partner with law enforcement and medical facilities so that they're aware that it's an additional option. The way I look at it is the survivor of sexual assault has a very limited time to collect evidence of that crime. Any DNA evidence, according to research, would be completely gone after about 72 hours. So that's three days. 
And over those three days, the evidence is, is leaving slowly but surely after, after showering or changing clothes. You know, any movement is going to start causing any evidence to sort of leave your body. So my perspective is that if a survivor can't go forward and have evidence collected by trained personnel, the only other option right now is for them to do nothing. And then if they decide even a week later that they do have the strength or the willingness for whatever reason changed their mind to come forward, now they don't have any evidence. So to me, I feel like it's the next best thing that a survivor of sexual assault could do. They may be very traumatized. They may not have any experience in collecting evidence, and most people don't unless you're in law enforcement or trained to do so. But you're actually doing something so that if you change your mind in the future and if you want to come forward, you're coming from a position of strength rather than a position where, well, now my only option is just to make an allegation and not back it up with solid evidence. When you talk about solid evidence, in addition to the collection of DNA and fibers that you talked about, do you also encourage them to take photos? Yes. So we encourage them in the directions to take photos of anything that might be pertinent, any bruising, anything in their body, anything that is significant to what whatever had happened, whatever their circumstances are. So we get a lot of questions, you know, what about being attacked for chain of custody? You know, a lot of questions about really every aspect of it. So, you know, if you think of a detective collecting evidence and they start the chain of custody, and then it goes through the process to the lab and on down the road. When they're on the witness stand, if the case goes to trial, they're attacked for every bit of work that they do. That's just what a defense attorney is hired to do. So this is no different than that. I mean, the victim or survivor, him or herself, would have to be the one, if they had to testify, to say, well, this is what I did and I followed these instructions and that's what I was told to do. I'm not trained, but say the DNA from the kit did connect to a particular person. And then the investigation eventually ensued that collected enough evidence, witness testimony, etc., to file charges against somebody would be the survivor to have to testify. But at that point, you know, I'm thinking that if they've collected their own evidence and they've come forward to law enforcement, that they would be able to say, yes, I collected this. What is the difference, and I'm playing devil advocate here, but what would be the difference between this preserve kit and say, keeping the torn panties or the torn pair of jeans or the blue dress as evidence for later. You're absolutely right. So there are a lot of cases and the famous blue dress, which is of course the Monica Lewinsky dress, a lot of times people do have the wherewithal to keep some item that was involved on the day of the you know event. And there are some cases where DNA has been extracted from those articles of clothing and matched to a particular person. Either crimes have been proven or corroborated with Monica Lewinsky and President Clinton. It's the same thing. The beauty of the preserve kit is we're trying to get the word out that survivors have another option. So many survivors don't take their own clothing and keep it or, or don't keep anything from the day of the attack. 
And we want to get out there and let everybody know this is a possibility. If you just keep one thing that you think is important, that's terrific. It gives you an option for the future. If you want to do something a little bit more organized and something that you know you're following the correct law enforcement protocols, you know, then you can do something like the preserve kit. This is all so fascinating to me. I truly am not trying to sell my first book. But, you know, as I explained to you, my book, Pay to Play, features a sexual assault. The sexual assault involves the main character in the book, the female special agent. The sexual assault happens to her when she's young and then happens to her when she's an agent and she doesn't report it. You know, when she's younger, because she kind of feels that it was her fault. And when she's older, because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she doesn't know how it would affect her marriage and her career. And so I understand. I actually get it. I've, you know, I've already created a story from my imagination and a little bit from my past that talks about this phenomenon of not reporting a sexual assault and why people, the reasons people do it. So I get it. How are you going to be able to educate people and to spread the message other than the people who are going to hear this episode? How else are you getting out and talking to people and letting them know that this is another option? Well, what we're working on now is trying to partner with the various entities that have, you know, end sexual violence as one of their missions. So there are so many of them that it's, it's been almost difficult to narrow it down. But there's an organization called RAIN, and they're the biggest nationwide organization that works with sexual assault. And I've gotten a lot of their research. I've talked with their executive director and our prototype for our product will be up and running this month. So I'm going to send him the prototype. I'm hoping to partner with places like that because they'll help us get the word out. You know, they will put it on their websites. By the way, there's another option now. And um, so we're also going to colleges. Colleges are one of our first markets because the rates of sexual assault, although epidemic to begin with, it's even higher on college campuses. One in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. So that's the overall statistic, which I just found daunting when I first read that. But then I started researching college campuses, and it's one in five women, undergraduate women, will be raped during their time at college. And the numbers are just incredible to me. So that's why we focused on colleges uh, to be sort of our first market. Everybody we've been talking to says, well, I'm not in college and I want one, or how am I going to get it if I'm not at college? And so we're also planning a mainstream way of getting the product out so that it, it is available to everybody. Well, I have two other issues that I'm thinking of right now. And, and of course, we've all heard about the evidence collection rooms at police departments that are full of unprocessed rape kits. And we also hear about evidence that is lost. So I guess also, even if a victim has reported it to the police, even if they have done a rape kit, that this is 
a great backup system? I agree. I think it would be a great backup system. And here's why. All those reasons you just mentioned. I mean, it's incredible when you read the articles that so many rape kits haven't been processed or will just be sitting there for years and years. And I don't know how survivors can expect to receive any justice I mean, under those circumstances. So yes, this is a, a backup, so to speak, if you have evidence that hasn't been collected by the police and you want to keep your own. I think that is an excellent second choice. Part of the future of our kit is I'm looking at three different things that I think will be super important for this particular project. One is related to sealing of the evidence. There is something, everybody's heard of blockchain because that's Bitcoin and the other types of coins that are out there like Ripple and XRP. But um, there is something out there. It's a new technology and it is called blockchain chain of custody. So one of the things I'm envisioning for the future is to have a seal that we can place on our evidence and it will sort of start the chain of custody in the blockchain so that it's immutable. So uh, you know, a survivor collects their evidence, they go on an app on their phone, they put in the information, all right, right now I just sealed my evidence, and then it can never be altered. And then when they hand it over to a lab, for example, or an attorney, you know, go, that information goes into the same app. And again, now we have that, that chain of custody, but now it's up in a blockchain. So that's one one thing I'm envisioning. Another thing I'm envisioning is offering a storage solution. Uh, I was talking with my own daughter, who's who's 24, and she said, you know, if I did this kit and I kept it in my closet, I would be afraid that my father would come in and see it, or somebody I was dating, or some some someone she didn't want to know. So it got us thinking about storage solutions. And we're working right now with a storage facility up in Massachusetts. And um, we're hoping to provide survivors with, with just an option if they choose to do so. Once they seal their evidence, they can put it in a box, send it to the storage facility, and they will maintain the evidence there with chain of custody until the survivor wants their evidence back. I think more importantly to your question, my goal is to partner with the private forensic laboratory. I believe that we can put a, a system in place where evidence can be collected by the survivor and the survivor can then send that evidence to the lab, which can analyze the evidence just like an FBI lab or any other crime lab would analyze. And then you have your results, you know, what DNA it is, uh, if there are any prints, um, etc. And then if you don't go forward to law enforcement for a year, you don't have to worry about your chain of custody because you actually have your lab results at that point. You don't have to worry where's the item, did it get lost? So those are some of the things that I think will be in the future of the kit so that we can offer you know, additional comfort to survivors for handling the evidence. All right. So again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. What we're talking about really is a shame culture. The victims aren't coming forward because they feel shame of what happened to them. It's great that you're going out to talk to college students, but how much of that mindset of having them not feel ashamed about something that wasn't their fault, how much of that is incorporated in your presentations to these women 
and how much of it is incorporated in your package messaging? So I think our culture is changing now with the Me Too movement. A lot of cases are coming to the forefront in the media. And I do think that culture is changing as far as sexual assaults are concerned. We're obviously going to be encouraging everybody to come forward. I have talked by now with many survivors, and most of them are set in their thinking, at least the people I have spoken with. And a couple of people I've spoken with have said, it was my fault because I put myself in a situation where it happened and I shouldn't have put myself in that situation. Whether it's, you know, I went to the person's dorm room, I got in the person's car, whatever the situation might be. And, you know, I will respond by saying, you know, well, it's never your fault. Uh, you know, if you're sexually assaulted, you didn't cause it. If you didn't give consent, you did not cause a person to rape you just because you were in a room or a vehicle or wherever it happened. I mean, I don't think this will affect everybody, but I'm hoping that a product like this will have an eventual societal change as far as mindset is concerned about sexual assaults and coming forward. Obviously, if one in five women is sexually assaulted in her lifetime, then it's pretty obvious with, with that kind of number that it's really pervasive. So, you know, if, if I come forward and say, I'm a survivor, I know that, you know, the, within the next six people, there's another one. So there's a lot of company in, in this world, unfortunately. What I try to do for, for all of my case reviews is to think about what kind of questions listeners might have. And I'm thinking about, you know, an older male law enforcement officer who's listening to this. And my thought is that one of his questions is, what about the other physical evidence? So you've collected, you know, some fluid and you collected some fiber, but what about the physical, um, and we have some photos, but there's also trauma, you know, tissue trauma, you know, for somebody who's been raped, and you're not getting any of that, which probably is some of the most dramatic evidence that you could present to a juror, you know, that would really say, oh, yes, this person was physically attacked. Yes, we've gotten a lot of questions along those lines. So we designed the kit to be as complete as possible. Again, for you know a survivor who may be traumatized and not trained in evidence collection. So it's not the same thing as a rape kit. It's not the same thing as being at a medical facility. It is the next best thing. We don't recommend doing an internal exam and you know examining that kind of trauma at all. So this is really so that we're collecting as much evidence as possible, as opposed to doing nothing. I get it. You know, in a way, I'm thinking, because I, I like the idea. You know, I truly understand people being too afraid or ashamed to report. And I get what you're saying, that this is better than nothing. And I'm kind of thinking the preserve kit is more for the roommate, the best friend, the counselor who says, look, I understand that you don't want to go to the hospital. I understand that you don't want to have to do a, a rape kit. I understand that you don't want to tell the police, but please at least take this preserve kit. Take this option. So if you change your mind later on, you have something. Is that like the, the main message, the main person that you're you're talking to? We're mainly talking to the survivor themselves, but 
in our instructions, we include two sets of gloves, for example. And in the instructions, we say, you know, if a friend is going to help you with this, uh, have your friend wear the gloves. And at the end of the instructions, we have sort of a certification section where we ask the person who is collecting the evidence to sign and date it. And we also have a space there if someone helped you put that person's name and identifying information there. So again, in the research, there is a lot of stress right now on bystander awareness, which is what you're talking about with the roommate or the friend or the counselor or a medical person. It's the person that the survivor is telling this happened to me. And so yes, if that person is aware of the preserve kit, they can recommend, even if you're not willing to do it, just take the kit. Maybe you'll change your mind. Or maybe the survivor will take the kit, say, no, I'm not going to do it, but actually actually take a look at it and do it later. Tell us at what stage the preserve kit is, you know, where where it is and getting out there in the market. And if you could also, for those who get it like me, who want to support you, if you could tell us how we could help get the message out, get the kit out, get the awareness out. So it took us a really long time to fine tune this product. We submitted a a provisional patent application, so we have patent pending on it. And the only reason it's not already on the market was we upgraded our exterior packaging. We're going to launch in July. In terms of support, we're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So please follow us. And we have a website, which is preservekit.com. We have a lot of information there. And feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. I love hearing from, like you're doing, the devil's advocates, because it makes me think and research various aspects of this, because I want it to be the best possible alternate solution for survivors. Well, fantastic. Before we end, there are two things that we have to do that are standard. You've got to tell us when you joined the FBI and why you joined the FBI. And then I want to give you the last word. So your FBI story, tell us about it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, all right. When I was young, I was always passionate about mysteries and crime solving and things like Nancy Drew. And I think I was 12 years old when the then director, J. Edgar Hoover, passed away. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, the FBI started allowing females to apply as special agents. And I remember it like it was yesterday. My mother pointed out this article in the Boston Globe to me. And I said to her after reading, I said, that is what I want to do for work. I want to be a special agent with the FBI. So um, throughout high school, I maintained that thinking. I was just so focused and goal-oriented. And when I was a junior in high school, I contacted the Boston office of the FBI, and I spoke with the applicant coordinator there. And they explained all the rules. You know, you have to be 23 and all the uh, all the other rules for applying. So I thought about all the different backgrounds, the FBI was looking at at the time as far as education and careers and what might make me the most competitive. So I decided, okay, I'll I'll either go into accounting or I'll go into law and decided to focus on accounting. I already loved math and I knew I could do a great job at being an accountant if for some reason it didn't work out that I got into the FBI. 
and I also realized that I'd have to spend a lot more time in college if I went to law school. So that was my second reason for becoming an accountant and not a lawyer. So fast forward, I was 22 and had my accounting degree. I was working as an accountant up in the Boston area and applied to the FBI and I was accepted. I was thrilled and honored. I enjoyed every single minute of my career as a special agent with the FBI, which was 28 years. So you were able to get into the FBI at age 23, even though the average person joining the FBI is around age 30. Yes. And so I was the youngest female in my class. And um, the other person in my class uh, at Quantico from Boston was the youngest male in the class. There were pros and cons to getting in when you when you know I was that young. I wasn't very mature. I didn't have a lot of worldly experience. My first office was Kansas City, Missouri, and I remember thinking it was a place near Mississippi when I first read the letter of assignment. So there are little things like that. You obviously weren't very worldly. <laughs> Not at all by then. <laughs> Missouri and Mississippi. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, not even close. <laughs> well, that's a great story, though. And you stayed for 28 years. So that's that's pretty fantastic. This has been an unbelievable conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I wish we had known each other while we were in the Bureau. I would have loved to have worked a, a white collar case with you. So I, I think we would have been great partners in crime. I agree. I think we would have worked very well together. All right, so we're at the very end where I love to give my guests the last word. So what would you like to say? The FBI, it's a wonderful career, and anybody thinking of joining the FBI would have such a satisfying life. Every day is an adventure, and I just highly recommend it. And then as far as the Preserve Kit and the work we're doing now, I really do think that it could be a society changer. We really do hope to be of some help and comfort to survivors of sexual assault. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Jane and a newspaper article about this case and articles from the FBI website on environmental crimes. There are, of course, links to her websites, Secure Investigations, and the Preserve Group, where you can learn more about the Preserve Kit. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or anywhere you listen to audio. This podcast is where I talk about true crime, but if you also enjoy watching crime dramas and reading crime fiction, then you want to join my reader team. When you do, you'll get a copy of my FBI reading resource, which is a list of all the books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. True crime, memoirs, and crime novels. And in case you missed the big announcement, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, is now out and available worldwide as an ebook, paperback, and hardback wherever books are sold. And guess what? My crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, 
are now also available worldwide wherever books are sold. So if you enjoy reading police procedurals, I hope you consider picking up copies of the books in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. I want to thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.